Welcome to the Texthelp Talks podcast, your space online to listen, learn, and explore disability inclusion. This season, we're focusing on accessibility, and today marks the second episode of this series. Make sure you're subscribed through your preferred podcast player or streaming service to catch the rest of the season. Today, you're hearing from me, Rachel Krusel, Higher Education Specialist at TextHelp, and Jamie Shields, Principal Disability Accessibility and ERG Lead at AMS. Jamie also works self-employed as a speaker, trainer, and accessibility consultant. Jamie is registered blind and is autistic and ADHD. As a professional working in the space of disability accessibility, Jamie will share his personal and professional insights into what disabling content really means and the impact on users and businesses. So first, welcome, Jamie. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. And apologies to anyone listening to my Northern Irish accent. The ADHD means the more excited I talk, the faster I get. And I'm really excited to be here. So please keep me in line. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see if I can do that today. So, Jamie, we've been lucky to have worked with you before for our Festival of Workplace Inclusion last year, and it's great to have you back with us today. Thank you. As an advocate for disability and inclusion, you're doing a lot of work inside and outside of AMS to raise awareness and really make a change in the digital space and beyond. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your motivation for advocating for accessibility. Yeah, so um, I think you've picked me up really well. Um, so I, um, obviously from Northern Ireland, I have been disabled since birth. Um, I say disa- disabled because I opt for the social model language, um, which is society disables me. There's these barriers and the ableism across society that disables me and excludes me. So that, um, that was something I always struggled with was my identity. So even getting a state to say I was disabled, five years ago, I wouldn't have said that because I grew up in Northern Ireland where difference is not always accepted or appreciated. And DEI, so anything around inclusion, tends to be not as formalised or in place as it is in the mainland UK. Um, So for me, I kind of grew up in Northern Ireland and didn't really have exposure to any of this realm. I just knew that I was struggling and I didn't know how to articulate that. I didn't know how to express that. And I also didn't know I was neurodivergent. So I thought I was just disabled. And my mind was my mental health impacted me and anxiety. So when I actually found out I was neurodivergent, it was like, oh, wow, so this makes sense now. Um, but because of those experiences, um, you know, segregated in education, because that's what we did with disabled people back in the 90s. We segregated them. And you know, I grew up feeling excluded. I then got bullied when I went to secondary school. Then I entered the world of work. And when I say entered the world of work, I'm going to say bounced around like a pinball machine because I, I couldn't find an employer who would accept me because of my disability. So I spent most of my life excluded, struggling with mental health, not known as neurodivergent. And then I think I exploded when I started working for AMS because it was the first time in my life somebody said, what can we do to support you? And it was in recruitment. The one industry that I always kind of judged was like, I wish they would just give me a chance. So I kind of, the past three, three and a half years, I tell AMS, they're like, it's like they're a little mermaid, I'm a little mermaid, and they give me my voice and they haven't been able to shut me up since. <laughs> and that has just led to 
me becoming a content creator, me running my own side hustle. We say side hustle because when you say business to your employer, it's a lot more scary, I think. And I like the word side hustle. It doesn't make it sound as much as I have a lot more work to do, <laughs> despite there actually not being true. There's loads of work to do. Um, so, yeah, I've just, I think my work has been born out of a lifetime of being disabled by society and frustration and trying to find an outlet for that frustration. So you just mentioned it, and a phrase you mentioned in your work constantly is that you've been disabled by society your whole life. Can you really share what this means? Yes. So the social model of disability is a way to kind of identify with disability. There's many other forms uh, of models of disability, and I'm not saying the social model is the best. But for me, I very much do believe that society is not equipped to support or to encourage or to create a sense of belonging for disabled or neurodivergent individuals. We see disability and neurodiversity as this thing to segregate. And I mentioned earlier, I got segregated in education, but that still continues to happen a lot. So it does, you know, we continue to segregate or create different activities and create different experiences for disabled young people. And so those disabled young people who've been segregated or excluded grow into adults who feel the same. Um, So for me, that is ableism, that is a, a, not an intentional ableism. So people aren't intentionally trying to treat us differently, but it's ingrained in our society because it's what we see, it's what non-young disabled people see in school. They learn exclusion is okay. We don't teach about ableism. We don't teach that this concept of ableism is what really does disable us with attitudes. You know, people judge us. They think, oh, look at that poor disabled person. You know, God love them. Or, oh, he tied his shoelaces and he's so brave or he's got a job. And it's this really full in behaviours that are ableist and we don't address it. We just kind of skip over it. So for me, that is being disabled by people's attitudes. But then society has been built on the blocks of inaccessibility, which in itself is ableist because we're not thinking about disabled people when we're creating spaces, when we're creating job posts, when we're creating cultures. You know, we, we don't think about this and accessibility is left the background. Um, so for me, it's these blocks, these inaccessible blocks of society has been created um, on is glued together by that ableism. So when I say I'm being disabled by society, it is this structure that we have created across society that has impacted my being able to find employment, my feeling of self-worth, my confidence. And it's not just non-disabled people doing this. And I want to be really clear because disabled and neurodivergent people are both equally as guilty of being involved with this because we have internalised ableism. People who say, oh, you shouldn't say you're disabled. You should say person with disability or you shouldn't say either, you know, you have an ability or you have a superpower. And it's like, we don't, we don't create a space for people to be able to have that lived experience. And that's why I tell everybody I'm a registered blind or DHD rhino because rhinos are poor eyesight um, and they're change makers. They can change ecosystems. And I believe disabled people can change society. So that's a long-winded answer to say, it's a mix of everything, but for me, everybody's responsible. And I will say it all starts with one thing, and that is taking accountability. Taking accountability for accessibility, taking accountability for your own learning, and taking accountability to ensure that we are creating equal and equitable experiences, opportunities, spaces, websites, you name it, we need it. I love that, taking accountability. So when people think about accessibility, what comes to mind is usually the accessibility of 
physical spaces. But the digital world can be hugely inaccessible uh, for people with disabilities and cognitive differences. Inspired by your recent training series, Disabled by Your Content, we're here today to talk about disabling content and what that really means. Can you explain what you mean when you say that content is disabling? Yeah, so I grew up in the age of Bebo. So anyone listening, that gets around nearly my age, but I grew up in Bebo where it was a social media platform where people give each other love hearts each day. They left comments, they shared posts, and they could change themes and things like that. So it all, everyone's profile looked very individual. And the very few friends that I had were all on it. And everybody were ranting and raving about it. And I can remember for the first time trying it. And I couldn't really use, use it. My screen reader didn't work on it. These themes that were being created, I couldn't read the text in it. I didn't even know what colour contrast was back then because, again, I wasn't educated in what it meant to be disabled despite going to a specialist school. And I didn't even like that term specialist school. I went to an accessible school. It was inclusive, accessible education. But they didn't teach me either. They didn't help teach me about online accessibility. And so for most of my life, I was getting really frustrated online. And particularly when I looked at friends and colleagues who were starting to utilise like things like Facebook then, you know, as things kind of came out, there was so much more inaccessibility creeping up. And I really knew I struggled with online. People's websites were just, you just couldn't. You could go for a screen reader or trying to tab through a page or trying to work out what that text said in that image. It was like a game of words, Wally. And so it was frustration. But I would get so frustrated to the point where I, I don't regulate my emotions because of my ADHD uh, and my autism. It kind of is always conflict, constantly in a conflict. And so I was getting completely overwhelmed to the point where I was like, why am I bothering? And the society continued to move more and more online. And it's been doing it over the last decade. We've seen it. And you start to feel like you're losing your, not mobility, but almost in a sense, your online mobility, your confidence online. My banking was moving online and I couldn't use it. And all of a sudden I couldn't read my uh, letters or emails that I was getting because of the fonts. And I was like, enough is enough. Why am I so impacted by this? So. I began to speak to other people with lived experiences. I started doing courses around accessibility. And then I realized that there's actually quite a lot that we can do, which is free to find out about. An easy, quick win. It doesn't take long to make content accessible. So for me, it was like Pandora's box opened. I finally had an answer for why this color contrast didn't work or why I wasn't able to use my screen reader. And as the answers kind of came through, it then added more frustration because I was like, hold on a second, why is nobody else talking about this? So when I kind of came into recruitment, I came, I was came into the DEI space and there was a lot of people talking about inclusion, but they were all doing these same mistakes that everybody else was doing. They were all posting this inaccessible content and it was excluding me and it hurt because I was like, you're meant to be the leaders in this space. So what happened for me was I... I just exploded. Like, as I said, like Ariel, like, Ar- like Ariel, um, AMS gave me my voice and I just couldn't stop. I started ranting to AMS about it. I started ranting about it online. And it turns out my rants were actually listened to by other people who felt the same. Organisations started listening and even colleagues were coming up to me being like, I agree with what you posted on LinkedIn. And suddenly I realised that I'm being disabled online because I'm being excluded. When you disable me, you exclude me. You make me feel like less than and you don't treat me like a customer or a client or a potential friend or follower. You have put a barrier up and said, I don't want you. And if we thought about that, 
in an in-person situation, if you were in a group of people, would you turn around to one person or two people and say, leave the group, I'm going to tell the group something? You wouldn't do it. It'd be really rude. So that's what content is doing online when I said disables us. It excludes us. And it is something we don't have knowledge about. So that's what opened Pandora's box for me was just I started posting a lot of angry rants online. <laughs> so typically web accessibility guidelines look at factors that were more structural in nature. For example, making sure that websites could be navigated by keyboards, including text descriptions on images. But today there's also a focus on cognitive accessibility factors, which includes readability. That is how easy content is to be understood. Can you share what difference it makes when businesses take both aspects into consideration? Yeah, I, I, so the guidelines of accessibility, I'll be honest, if anybody does go and read them, they can't be confusing. I'm a disabled person and I get confused by them. Um, so it can be really confusing. So firstly, if anybody does go look at them, do not feel bad if you do not understand them. Go look for people who are breaking it down and make it simpler. That's what I did. Um, and for me, there's... There's always this thing about accessibility where it's people see it as a trend or they see it as an expense or they see it as a nice to have. And really, it's none of those things because it's not an expense. It's an investment in your people. So for me, I always go back to the idea of universal design. And universal design is about making things as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Now, that's not saying accessibility is a one-size-fits-all and it will fix everything, because it won't. We are all such diverse individuals with different needs, with different support, with different with different preferred ways of navigating online, and some of us are using different sets of technology. So for me, it's that concept of universal design. Businesses need to really think about that, um, and that's bringing all these pieces together and trying to make sure that we're communicating things in as many ways as possible, making sure that our you know, images that... We are thinking of different ways to communicate. Our videos, we're thinking of different ways to communicate. Even our job postings, you know, typically they're just text on a website. Why aren't we using like voice descriptions? Why aren't we creating videos? So for me, it's about looking at those many ways as possible to communicate with people and for people to be able to engage and respond for you. Um, and I listened to a TED Talk, and this is something I always explain to businesses. I listened to a TED Talk from Mara Evans, who is a deaf accessibility advocate. And she said... We have three ways of communicating at any given time. Sign, so if you're signing, speaking, and we all carry around a mobile phone. So that we always have three ways of communicating. And she said, think about accessibility like that. You're trying to communicate as many ways as possible. And what you're going to do is you're going to get an increased audience. You're going to be building not just a inclusive culture, but a culture that actually fosters belonging. And we talk about inclusion a lot in business, corporate companies, or sorry, corporate world go online around particular days of the year, you know, Disability Pride Month, International Day of Persons with Disability, or even Pride Month in June, they mark certain days and they always forget about this accessibility element. And it's like, it becomes then tokenistic because like most things in this space, you can't just focus on, you know, we're going to focus on Pride Month, we're going to focus on LGBTQ+, we're going to focus on um, gender, we're going to focus on ethnicity. You can focus on one of these particularly because we are all intersectional bearing. We all are 
have different oppressions and we all have different privileges and it's about how things intersect so you can't just focus on one so it's an investment in making sure that you're creating an actual inclusive space not just giving lip service not just walking up uh, talking a talk you're actually starting to walk the walk and that's what fosters belonging is being able to bring your full self to work so companies need to really pay attention to accessibility and it's not saying you need to get it right straight away because there's no quick wins in accessibility. You don't take a box and be done. You continue with it. Hopefully that answered it didn't take it down a rabbit hole. No, that was fantastic. And it actually leads into our next question really beautifully. Uh, when businesses don't address accessibility, it leaves a huge impact on their online visitors. Access to services and products become limited, as well as access to information and even employment opportunities. Are there any experiences you'd like to share? Yeah, like I, I've been disabled by people's recruitment processes more times in my life than I probably had hot dinners. Um, and that's actually said by jobs is I've had more jobs than hot dinners. Typically, if a recruiter looked at my CV, they'd say, oh, no, we won't hire him. He's never had employment for more than a year. Um, so for me, it wasn't because of my disability that I didn't get these jobs. Because in fact, I actually think my lived experience means that I am... Um, a problem solver I'm constantly having to navigate in accessibility every single day um, I have perseverance I have drive because I'm constantly having to come, overcome these barriers but in the past I have applied for jobs online I went to apply for jobs online clicked on the link the tax is either so tiny and I can't make any amendments or it's in a completely inaccessible font or they've decided oh I know what we're going to do we're going to add some pretty brands into the back and we're going to stick really terrible contrast to tax on top or they send you PDF applications which aren't accessible unless you remedy that document. Um, and as well as that, it's it's even sometimes when I've been in person, you know, trying to get in, get an uh, in-person application. And we know we don't do that as much anymore, but back then, you know, I'm, I'm coming 33. Um, so, like, I remember having done people applications and getting them. And even getting them, they weren't in larger font. When I asked for larger font, it was like, what do you mean? So I've had... Numerous experiences of being excluded whilst trying to apply for jobs. But the biggest one for me around accessibility would be I applied for this job, which was with, I'm not going to say the name company, but it was like a really well-known recruitment brand. And this is before I actually started working in AMS. So I was trying to get into recruitment. Um, even though I tell everybody I fell into it, I secretly wanted to come in and shout at everybody to how to be accessible. Um, but I applied for this business and they had decided, oh, we're going to give you some testing. Now, those kind of subject, I, I can't remember the proper name, SJT testing, it's like subject judgment, situational judgment testing, and you get like multiple options, um, and it's all timed and things like that. That was all online, which I was like, right, I'll be fine. I have a screen reader. I can zoom in if I need to, um, or I can get somebody to sit down beside me and read me the questions. Not a problem. When I got the assessment, you, I had asked, I obviously had asked and made where I was disabled. Um, but they didn't give me any kind of time adjustment. They said usually they give extra time anyway, so not to worry about it. But it was completely contradicting information because the assessment was so, and I mean timed, it was like 10 seconds to answer a question. When you don't read it the same pace as everybody else and you're relying on assistive technology to navigate that web page, you're also not as fast as somebody who has that visual element and that visual privilege. So I struggled. I filled the assessment. I think out of the 100%, I got like 10%. And for somebody who didn't know there was neurodivergent, 
feelings of Nagatar can make you feel so insignificant. So it didn't just impact my eyesight, it impacted my thinking, my self-worth, my confidence, because suddenly it was like, this is your fault. You're stupid because you couldn't say this, or you're stupid because you couldn't do that. And that was internalized ableism. I believed it was my fault. And that's what a lot of people will be experiencing when they experience inaccessibility. They will think this is my fault because I am disabled. When actually the fault lies with society, not in one particular individual, it lies in society for that lack of education, for that lack of awareness, and for these completely inaccessible websites that continue to be created, these inaccessible recruitment processes that continue to be created. And it's because the people don't have the knowledge. It's not they're intending to. It's, I don't believe it's intentful. If it is, it's terrible. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about what you've said, and this can place a huge impact on businesses as well. For example, inaccessible digital content can mean excluding a huge customer base, considering that one in six people have a disability, one in five are neurodivergent. This is a combined 37% of the global population. Many employers also advertise job opportunities online. We've talked a little bit about this. Um, so they're excluding potential employees who can bring a wealth of talent, diversity, and thought to their company. This could also be skills associated with neurodivergent talent is out-of-the-box thinking, creative solutions, just to name a couple, all the way to characteristics often associated with those with disabilities, resiliency, empathy, tenacity. Part of the work you do outside of AMS is about helping businesses to take accountability for accessibility. If you could share one piece of advice to businesses around accessibility, what would that be? Um, I'm going to repeat something I said because it's honestly the best advice I think I would get is there's no end with accessibility. There's only ever a starting point. And it's okay to start at the very start or start halfway through. We're all at different places with it. I have heard the term, oh, I want a quick win. We hear this in corporate all the time. Give me a quick win. I'm so against that quick win because for me, accessibility is its not an overnight fix. It's continuous improvement because technology evolves, language evolves, people evolve. We have seen the biggest, like I'm trying to think of the right word here, the the fastest accelerating, the, the, the fastest acceleration of technology at the moment around AI. And I look at that and I think, oh my goodness, where are we going to be with accessibility in a few years? Because we have technology now that can write a fully accessible website. Now, it's not 100% yet. Sorry, so it's not fully accessible. It's nearly fully accessible. There's a few things with it. But where are we going to be in a year's time from now, 10 years from time from now? So for me, it's about accessibility can't be a quick win. It is about creating a roadmap, looking at what you can do in the now, what you're going to do in three months from now, what you're going to do in six months, when, when are you going to review it in a year's time, where, and then what you're going to do is continuously looking at it, continuously reviewing, continuously listening to feedback. And it's also acknowledging that you're not going to know it all. I don't know it all. I'm registered blind. I am autistic and I'm ADHD. I've also got back scoliosis, partly attack disabilities like Pokemon cards. Um, but for me, it is we are only experts in our own lived experiences. So listen to your colleagues, create employee resource groups, have people with a lived experience tell you what works and what doesn't, because it's not a quick fix. It's not a quick win. And it's okay not to know where, where you are, but having that roadmap gives you an outline of where you need to go. This is brilliant, Jamie. Thank you so much for your insights today. It's been so great chatting with you. And to those listening, thanks for joining us. If you'd like to gain more advice on accessibility, head to our resource area at text 
help slash accessible dash content. You'll find lots of guides and webinars to support you. You'll find our contact details on our website too, so feel free to reach out to us with any questions. And to find out more about Jamie, check out his LinkedIn at Shields Jamie. There you'll find details on his accessibility training, disabled by your content. And before we go, be sure to subscribe to Text Help Talks on your preferred podcast player or streaming service to catch the next episode. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks.